We're going to pray. Let's go to the Lord. Father, thanks for the day that you've given us. God, an opportunity to not only love you, but to love others, to witness to what you've done in our lives, to seek you with all of our heart, all of our soul, our mind, and our strength. And God, to proclaim you, your Son Jesus, and your Holy Spirit as those who reign over our lives, who will reign forever in eternity and who we proclaim today as we study your word. God, I pray that you continue to help us examine our lives to how we seek joy, to what our sources of joy are, to where our happiness comes from. And God, may you lead us today. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Help us to know how we need to align our hearts with your word and you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what makes you happy? Audience participation time. What makes you happy? Oh, now you're talking. Wayne, you know my language. What makes you happy? Me? Hey. That's, yeah. Oh, there is such truth in that, isn't there? What makes you happy? Family. I heard something back here. A beautiful wife. Oh, way to score points in front of everybody, David. Wow. <laughs> I heard something else. What makes you happy? Christmas? Jesus? Sleep? All the grandkids. So lots of things, right? Lots of things make us happy. Maybe a good report from the doctor makes us happy. Should. Maybe winning the game. Maybe that big project, whether it's school or work or maybe with the family, the big project that you've been working on has finally come together and it's done. There's nothing like writing an ex- or finishing an exam, right? And, or a big project at work and it's like, whew. Being with family and friends, some of you mentioned that. Time off work. Six inches of snow. I know. I had to put that in there. Yay, thank you. Thank you. I know you all don't like that, but there's all kinds of things that make us happy. I think what's fascinating to me is that in most languages, including biblical language, both New Testament, Old Testament, but even our language today, there are all kinds of words for happy. We use words like maybe merry or happy or cheerful or joyful, but that's also true in the Hebrew Old Testament as well as the Greek New Testament. There are words that describe this. Most of them come down to this feeling of joy and happiness. Now, I think what we're going to find today that is really important for us to know as we walk in this world is that what makes biblical joy not only interesting but truth for our lives is that there is a difference. There is a difference between worldly happiness and biblical joy. But I think we also need to note that the kinds of things that bring us happiness and joy may differ depending on our lives, but there is one true source. And then lastly, what we're going to examine a little bit today is this this idea of how joy permeates from page one of Scripture all the way to the book of Revelation. Joy is a very significant theme. It's not just about knowing it. There's a lot of things we can know, and it's good for us to know. Knowing things builds our belief, but then there is also the experiencing from joy. For example, today, 
of what we believe in who God is and what God has done. If you turn to the first page of the Bible, what you will see in the creation story in the book of Genesis is you will see God use words like good as he creates. You will also see phrases, particularly in his creation of man and woman, as very good. This is really helpful to us because I think a lot of times we tend to say as Christians, well, we have joy, but we're not allowed to be happy. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that God created things. He called them good and very good. And in that, we naturally can experience joy from those things. Scripture speaks about it in a lot of ways. In Psalm 65, it's phrased like this, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. Modern day for us, a good job where you can exercise abilities, you can provide for your family, you can reap the benefits of your labor. Those are all good things. Having children is another thing that brings happiness. Relationships. But it's interesting because you will find a lot of those descriptions in Scripture, not only Old Testament, but in New Testament, that talk about the joys or the happiness of things in this world. It's a foundation for us. It's not that we throw those things aside when we choose biblical joy. They include, are included in biblical joy. But there's a couple of clues that we see in the Old Testament especially. Look with me at Psalm 4-7. And if you want to uh, open it up in your Bibles, you can. But I, I, want, I have uh, quoted the English Standard Version because I really like how this captures this. But look what it says here. The psalmist writes, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So when you think about grain and wine in that culture, what you know is that when it abounded, it was abundant in your life, is that that was a sign of good things for you for a lot of different reasons. But the psalmist says something here that we have to get a hold of if we want to understand biblical joy. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than these things. There's something more. There's something else that we are designed with that is integral to our DNA. And if we choose to look for it in the right place, the psalmist says there will be more joy than anything on this earth can bring you. Look also at Psalm 1611 is another clue for us. The psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now look at this. With, what's that next word? Eternal pleasures at your right hand. So what he's saying is, there are things that are not eternal. But you give, you restore things for eternal pleasure. Another clue that while we can experience happiness in our circumstances, there's something more. These verses and so many other in Scripture reveal what I would say is a greater level of joy. Um, you can go deeper if you want. You can say it builds upon general happiness. It's okay, Christians. It's okay, church, to be happy. But where do you put it? 
Where is it in your life? Because what these verses begin to intimate and reveal is that there is something more than just the pleasures from a good day's work or the pleasures from a nice paycheck or the pleasures of having kids. There's something that's called hope. That no matter what your outward circumstances are or the pleasant situations you experience, is there is a hope that runs deeper. There is an assurance and a stability that these verses begin to speak of that in spite of broken relationships, you can still have assurance. You can still have stability. There's also this idea of encouragement. That even when everything around you is discouraging, you can be encouraged. And perhaps with that, whether that's in your job or your finances, is that when discouragement comes... What the Bible teaches us is that there is more to outlast that. There's also this idea of contentment. That maybe in the midst of an illness, maybe in the midst of a loss of any kind, is there can be contentment. This is where biblical joy begins to separate itself. This is where biblical joy begins to rise out of what can be a very good thing in happiness. But happiness, what you will find, if you haven't already discovered this in your life, happiness, worldly defined, is very limited. It is bound. It's bound in a world corrupt with our selfishness. It's bound in a world corrupt and driven by us. You see, when things are driven by us as human beings, limited... Pleasant circumstances are all that we can hope for, for happiness. In other words, things are good for me right now, so life is good. But it's also dependent on human ability, worldly happiness is. In other words, if we can manufacture it, if we can do it, if we can turn that frown upside down, if we can do whatever we want to do or can do to appear happy in our human ability. But what that means is we're depending on us and not the grace of God. What it means is that it is very unpredictable. Because guess what? We're all unpredictable. It's controlled and disciplined people as we think we are. Sin as Romans 7 says, is always lurking from our fallen nature. But worldly happiness does something in turning discouragement to something that we just cover up. Something that, well, things aren't going well, so I'm going to hide it. I'm going to post, I'm going to talk about everything else, but I'm going to set aside, I'm going to hide what really is discouraging my heart. The beauty of biblical joy is that it defeats discouragement. And perhaps most importantly is worldly happiness is temporary. It's not eternal. Flocks one day that are full and abundant may have been killed overnight by wolves in that time. And all of a sudden your flocks are not full. One day you walk and you're healthy, and then uh, pain starts, and you go to the doctor, and the next day, because of the world we live in, and its fallenness, you have a diagnosis that is not long-lasting. It's temporary. 
C.S. Lewis. And if, I, I just want to say, if you've never read any of C.S. Lewis's works, do it. Just do it. Put it on your, your bucket list, goal list, whatever you call it, but put it on there. He writes in his book, Mere Christianity, which is a, just a classic in so many ways. He begins to speak of these worldly desires, and this is on the screen. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. C.S. Lewis also wrote, um, or also his um, biography is is called uh, Surprised by Joy. I've not read that one. It's on my list. But in that book, as I've read some quotes from that book, is what he begins to describe joy as, as this deep longing for God. And the more we search for it in this world, we cannot find it in this world, alluded to here. But what it does is it speaks to the greater thing that we were created for, and that's joy in God. Let me ask you again. When you're discouraged, when your circumstances aren't going well, when you've been frustrated or hurt or disappointed, what makes you happy? Bit of a different question, I think. But what makes you happy? There's a time in the Israelites' history when they were in Egypt and they were enslaved. And we read about this in the Old Testament. We read about the raising up of Moses to lead these people into freedom. And it's fascinating to see how they responded when they finally, God freed them from the captivity in Egypt. And they came out in the middle of the desert, far away from the promised land, and they rejoiced. In fact, it says this in Isaiah 104, or excuse me, 105.53. Do I have that one? Okay, I got it here. The Lord caused His people to leave with joy, His chosen ones with shouts of joy. So, I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not. There's times we all sing. Sometimes it's what Sunday morning is, quite frankly. Joy to the world, the Lord. We, we sing, and it's fine. It's okay. It should be more. It always should be more. We can never give enough to God. But you know the moments in your life where something has happened, and it is not anything you can contain. Some would say inexpressible joy, glorious joy. And you got to sing, and you got to sing loud, and it doesn't matter how you sing. It doesn't matter what you're singing, but you got to get it out because you are so full of joy. That's what they were experiencing. Imagine being in bondage. And imagine there becoming a way that you were freed from that bondage that has defined you and set your destiny for something that wasn't you were, what you were created for. That was the Israelites. May refer to a few other people in this room as well. You see, they were in the middle of the wilderness. They didn't know which way they were going. In fact, we know they wandered 
for a long time. But yet in the middle of wilderness, put your own thing in there. In the middle of your wilderness, you have the potential to experience biblical joy. Even when the experience is screaming everything but joy in worldly terms. We see it later with the Israelites. We see it once they've established in the promised land and, the, and things begin to crumble. They try to pick one king after another and some do well for a while and not. And they continue to pour all of their energy and effort to find the perfect one to lead their nation. And eventually it is broken. Eventually it is gone because they continue to place it in the trust of human beings and to walk away from God. Isaiah 51, 11, the prophet Isaiah says this, as he looks ahead to the coming king in the midst of the brokenness and the, 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 the defeat and the despair. He says, those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion singing. There's that again. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. He was anticipating of what was to come. He knew and he believed in God enough with his faith of what God had promised his people to be their God. I want to say this about joy. Biblical joy is an attitude that we adopt. Because sometimes we are in the wilderness. In fact, if not most of the time, sometimes we just don't know it. But it is an attitude that God's people adopts because of our faith in who God is and His love and His promises. So you might be saying to me, well, Dan, that's all great and fine when I feel like adopting joy. When I feel like embracing that as an attitude. So this was the stage set for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This was the stage set when there had been examples throughout Scripture in this world as a part of history where people chose joy even though it made no sense whatsoever. And then Isaiah says, Oh, you've only tasted a bit of what God's plan is for true joy. Enter the fulfillment of joy that first came in a manger. Now, we all know, we see a baby in a crib, I mean, my goodness, who can't be joyful at that? Okay? If you can't, then something's wrong. But you and I both know that if all we're embracing is the joy that a baby brings in the one God brought, it will not last. Because the baby's going to grow up. If the wonder and the anticipation and the excitement is just in a baby, joy will never crown our heads and cover our hearts. But there was a man early on his name was Simeon. And Simeon, who spent much of his time at the temple. And if you go to Acts, excuse me, Luke chapter 2, 
Luke's chapter 2 records this encounter when Jesus, as a baby, was brought to the temple. And Simeon, who had been waiting forever, he gives an indication in his very reply of why the baby was more than a baby. He says this in verse 28. Jesus has been brought to the temple. Simeon, very old in age right now, took him, that is Jesus, in his arms. And he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss me, your servant, in peace. Now catch this. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. In other words, it's not any baby. It is the one who has come to save us. And because of that, Simeon exhibited joy. He exhibited it in such a way that his heart just overwhelmed with joy. And he confirmed in his very words, confirmed joy coming through Jesus. Why should we adopt an attitude of joy? Well, I could pull the pastor-preacher thing. Well, you're Christians. You're supposed to do it. Okay, whatever. But it's got to be more than that. You can only manufacture joy so much. You can only do it through so many Christmases. You can only do it through so many deaths in your family. You can only do it through so many disappointments in your life. As meaner, or excuse me, as meager, as small as some of the things we get upset about, to the greatest of things that your whole life is built around other than Jesus, is that you can only manufacture it so long. Now, some people are masters, and they do it for decades in their life. But there will be a time, and the time is for every one of us, when we will have to stand before God, before Jesus, and answer the question, where was my true joy? There is only one answer. You can call it limited, you can call it um, uh, not thought out, you can call it intolerant, you can call it whatever you want, but there is one answer. So why should you adopt an attitude of joy? Why should you choose joy? I want to go to John 15 for the rest of our time. John 15. Some of these verses, and I'm going to jump around a little bit in this section. But I believe it captures a bit of not only why joy is something we should adopt from the biblical worldview but also when that happens what does that look like verse 9 says this Jesus is speaking here to his disciples he says as the, as the father has loved me that's god the father has loved me so have i loved you now remain in my love and i want to jump down to verse 13 Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is the personal evidence 
that God loves you. And that's where your joy starts. Your joy starts when that baby was laid in a manger. Because what God communicated to you and to everyone for eternity was that I love you and you can fill in your own name there. I love you and so there is one way I'm going to make you right with me so that we can experience communion, love together, and your life can be based on me. That will be your joy. And that joy is that you recognize that no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've screwed up, no matter how much you've failed or sinned, you can call it what you want, church, but it's all the same. And no matter what, the baby came for you. That's where your joy comes from. That's where your joy comes from. Because As it's been said, God thought of you, not just on the cross, God thought of you when he brought Jesus to this earth. He chose to be God in the flesh through Jesus the Son. That's love. And so when people say, why do you love God? Because of Jesus. Because he sent Jesus. Our joy arises from God's love to us through Jesus Christ. It means that no matter how far away from God's love you or anybody else thinks they are, is that it doesn't outreach God. It can't outreach God. We in our human ability, no matter how sinful, cannot out-sin the love of God. It cannot happen. That's joy. That's joy. Because it means no matter how horrible you think you are, no matter how horrible everybody around you thinks you are, you think they think you are, your love and worth and value is in one, and that's Jesus because of God. Just think about that for a moment. How would your life tomorrow be different where it didn't matter, not because you're going to go out and create all kinds of chaos and terror, but no matter what you did, but you sought to honor Jesus Christ and it didn't matter what people said to you. How would that change your day tomorrow? How would that change your marriage? How would that change your relationship with your kids? Radical. Absolutely radical. Because so often we do what we do because we're thinking about what people are saying about us and we base our worth. And men, I'm going to pick on us here. Our worth isn't our job. Our worth is how much money we bring home. Our worth is how many things we have. And the reality is, women, you've got all of your own. But the reality is your worth and value is none of those things, which is why when we lose those things, we start to fall apart without Jesus. Our joy... When we adopt biblical joy, the joy is that God loves you. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. Nothing else. Except to know that that baby is for you. Let's look at a little bit more. Verse 15, 9b And I'm going to read over some of this again. But he says, now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy 
may be in you, Jesus says, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And if you pop down to verse 17, it's a closing, this is my command, love each other. Jesus is not only the personal evidence of God's love, Jesus is the personal presence of God's love. Why should we adopt joy? Biblical joy that arises out of knowing God through Jesus is because His presence allows us to love others. Now I know some of us, I'll include myself, we think we're pretty good with people. We think we can talk ourselves in and out of situations We think that, you know what, for a time being, we can muster up whatever we need to muster up in order to love somebody. What if the only reason to love with somebody was because Jesus loved you? No other reason. Not their need, not their despair, but because Jesus loved you. Joy grows when we give love from Christ to others. That's when joy grows. You know, a lot of self-help books will say, and let me just clarify, this is not a self-help book. And if anybody ever refers to it as a self-help book, correct them. Because self-help books are based on how humans can help humans. This is based on God, divine, and how He has created and loved us. But in most self-help books, you'll hear... Things like, well, you just need to have some me time. You just need to take care of yourself. And oh, by the way, when you feel like it, go care for others. I see nowhere in this word where it says that. What I hear is, love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Pray for those who hate you. Love the least of these. And why is all of that? Not because of anything about us or them. It's about God. Your joy will rise up and grow when you love others with the love Christ gave you. But don't do it. Don't even attempt to do it in your own power because it will not last. It will be temporal. So as you look at relationships in your life, and if you are looking at that relationship and you keep saying, what do I do? What do I do? How can I do this? How can I understand more? Those aren't necessarily bad things. But if you aren't looking to Christ to restore a relationship, guess what? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Not for anything that counts for eternity. What is beautiful about it, it means that we don't get bound and pulled back by having to have a reason of why to love somebody. Because sometimes we look around us and we want to know what other people are thinking about the fact that we love that person. Because everything points to that you shouldn't. They have treated you like dirt. They have done whatever. And I'm not throwing out boundaries by any way, any means. There needs to be healthy boundaries. But often I think what happens is we love people based on how we think people are going to look at us. No, do it because of what Christ has done for you. Do it so that when you adopt it, your joy is going to override your love for others. People don't need more things. People don't need just more meals. It is a very evident need in our lives. But you look at any addiction, any need, the where it should start is 
that they see that their joy and worth and value is in Jesus. Guess whose job that is? Verse 16. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now here's what's funny. I don't know about you, but what do I focus on in that verse? The last part. Oh, anything? You mean I can ask anything and God's going to give it to me as long as I say, in Jesus' name. Yeah, I know, but nobody's going to admit that, but we do it. Um, but, but don't forget the first part of the verse. The first part of the verse says, paraphrase Dan, I've created you to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And so when you ask and your sights are on the kingdom of God, anything you ask in my name, I will give it. God will give it. But it can't be about you. And so this is why, as weird as this will sound, when you're suffering and you walk through suffering in the name of Jesus, guess what? You're bearing fruit. You're bearing fruit. Because in your suffering, you are choosing, if you choose Jesus Christ, you're not choosing to run. You're not choosing to try to mask it. You're not choosing to try to avoid it. You're saying, this is where I'm at. And while I don't get it, while I am suffering and I'm hurting and I'm in pain, I'm going to honor Jesus Christ in that. And that will well up a strength in you that you can't find from anything in this world. Nothing. And some of you have some really good friends and some good family. They can't be your strength. Your strength has to be Jesus. But fruit bearing is something that happens when we say Jesus and us will give us the strength. It is why Nehemiah said, for the joy of the Lord is my strength. Knowing Jesus Christ, knowing God the Father should be our strength. And then when you face the tragedies and terrors of this world, you don't have to defend them. You don't have to figure out why they happened. You can simply say, I will bear fruit because I will honor Jesus in the middle of it. Otherwise, I don't know how you explain the loss that we feel in this world. I don't know how else we can make sense of the evil in this world except to say, you know what, Jesus overcame it and I and him will do the same. I mean, it's why Paul in the prison and writing the letter to the Philippians, among others, in the most dirtiest of pits with rats and feces and you name it in there, and he considered it all joy. That's not a fairy tale that sounded good. This man was living it. He had already been persecuted because he believed it was a gift of God's spirit and that Jesus was present in him in the midst of hardship. Look at Romans with me, please. Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you adopt biblical joy, your joy is the strength that you have in Christ, not in you. So many times we're disappointed, we're hurt because we, we feel like we failed. I just, I can't be strong in this moment. You don't have to be. You don't have to be strong in the moment. 
What you have to be is in Christ with a consistent and a constant relationship by gathering with other believers in spiritual community and nurturing in your heart and soul the joy that you have faith in, the joy that God gave. Because Jesus warned us, he said, you will face persecution, but my reward for you is greater than what you will receive on this earth. And remember that the baby started there and he ended right there, kind of. We know he didn't stay there. You see, the joy starts there, but it points to there, death, death overcome. And if Jesus can overcome death and we are in Jesus, what's to say we can't overcome eternal damnation and death by trusting in him? We can So many times we want to take joy and we just want to turn that frown upside down. We want to talk ourselves out of it. What Paul says in Scripture, what we read over and over, is that it's not about avoiding the pain. It's not about acknowledging your sorrow, your hurt. No, you embrace that knowing that Jesus and the joy he brings is greater than that. So let's not just put on fake smiles and say, oh, I am full of joy. You may be. I hope you are. What makes you happy? If you lost everything but Jesus today, would you still be happy? You'd be sad. I would be sad for you. There would be a lot of grieving. But when Jesus is our joy... The sorrow and the hurting and the grieving will end one day. And oh, what a glorious day that will be. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled, what's it say? With an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Some of you are in here today. May have not truly embraced the joy that Jesus gives. And I beg of you today to not walk out of here without recognizing that he must be the source of your joy. He's the only source of joy that you'll ever be able to carry into eternity because you won't walk into eternity without Jesus. We're going to close in a little bit of extended worship today. And whether this altar up here is a place for you just to praise God and sing on your knees and worship to Him with shouts of joy, then I encourage you to do it. Whether it is a time for you to come and offer yourselves and admit that you have sought joy in everything else but Jesus, then I invite you to come. Somebody would be glad to pray with you. Perhaps where you're at, not only physically in this place, but in your heart, is that you've been reminded today once again of the joy you have, no matter what your outward circumstances are about, then I would ask that you sing with shouts of joy. 
because he's an amazing God. Father, in this room today, in these several hundred people, God, the, the range of experience and relationships that they've walked into this place with is pretty broad. Yet, God, you know, Holy Spirit, you know every situation, every circumstance. And I would ask that today, Lord, that you speak to us through your Spirit and give us the courage to come and lay that before you. Admit that we have looked for joy in other places or that we've settled on worldly happiness. Oh God, you've created us for more. Hear our time of worship. But most importantly, hear our hearts, not just our voices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.